Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davey Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. Today, I talk with Todd Billings, who is the Gordon H. Gerard Research Professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. An ordained minister in the Reformed Church in America, Billings received his MDiv from Fuller Seminary and his THD from Harvard. He is the author of multiple books, including The Word of God for the People of God, Rejoicing in Lament, and his new volume, The End of the Christian Life, How Embracing Our Mortality Frees Us to Truly Live. If you enjoy our conversation today, check out our back catalog of episodes with guests like Issa McCauley, Jumar Tisby, Makoto Fujimura, and Kristen Kobes-Dume. And now, to the conversation. Last fall, I was teaching on Confucius and ancient Chinese approaches to the good life. When we started reading about burial practices in the years of grieving rites that attended the death of a loved one, my students were taken aback. The attitudes, the seriousness, the enduring presence of death was unfamiliar to them. I asked them how many of them had ever seen a dead body, even at a funeral, and only a couple hands went up. The marginalization of death, its hiddenness, is strange and of course, ultimately a fool's errand. This past year, living through a pandemic has forced us to confront realities that many of us have spent years avoiding. Death is our neighbor now, and yet many of us aren't equipped to talk or think about its presence. Our guest today, Todd Billings, has written a bracing yet beautiful book, The End of the Christian Life, How Embracing Our Mortality Frees Us to Truly Live, published by Brazos last year. It itself is a follow-up to the 2015 book, Rejoicing in Lament, which he wrote following his diagnosis with an incurable cancer. So Todd, my friend, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. It's great to be with you. I don't know what kind of sign or omen it is that there's a tornado siren going off as we start this. (laughs) It's on a dark omen. (laughs) Some some sort of alarm is going on. It's a Lenten alarm. Talk about death. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to begin by um, reading the opening paragraph of your first chapter and then asking you a question about the book. So this is from uh, chapter one, uh, which is titled Welcome to Sheol. Dead means dead. No one is half dead or a little bit dead, except for the occasional zombie staggering forward in post-apocalyptic television shows. Like the idea of being a little bit pregnant or sort of an identical twin, halfway dead isn't a possibility. Until the heart stops and the brain shuts down and the doctor in the ICU pronounces death, we are alive. If my flesh shows no signs of animation and my body exudes the smell of decay, you can be pretty sure that I'm dead. There are only two options. Either I've departed or I'm still here. Either I'm deceased or I'm alive. Just as the bright fluorescent lights in my office are either on or off. At least that's what I used to think. So the paragraph lead your reader towards some expected, perhaps trite, uncritical orthodoxy about death, only to raise the possibility that death, or what you later call Sheol, exists on a spectrum experienced by all sorts of people in unexpected ways. So I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about your own story and about the path that led you to this realization about death and Sheol. Yeah, that's a great question, Davey. 
that's definitely not an insight that I started with, or even when I started the writing of this book, um, I think I was still thinking in terms of dead means dead and alive means alive. And I think for me, some of the storyline of learning about that has to do with my own um, cancer diagnosis when I was um, 39. So that was in 2012. Um, it came unexpectedly. Um, my kids, I was, I, I am married and my kids were one and three. And um, yeah, it's an incurable cancer. And so I've been through went through pretty intensive chemotherapy and continue on um, cancer treatment. I'm grateful to be alive um, and still still kicking, so to speak, um, and still able to um, teach and write and be a husband and dad. But one thing that happens if you join the cancer community, as it gets called, <laughs> it's the sort of club that nobody wants to be a part of. Um, you find yourself in almost contests with others who you know about who's going to live the longest. Um, and it's not like anyone tells you that this is, these are the rules of the game, but if someone with my same cancer were to meet up with me, I can guarantee that in the first five minutes, we would find out, oh, when did you have your stem cell transplant? When did you have this chemotherapy? And, you know, basically how long have you been alive since your diagnosis. And if someone has been alive, you know, three years, that's, you know, you celebrate that, but that's pretty expected. If it, if they've been alive six or seven years, it's like, whoa, yeah, you know, that's good. And if you've been alive 10 or 11 years, there's, there's like a sense of awe, like, oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. And you can easily get the sense that the one who lives the longest wins. And I found that that's not just the case for the cancer community, but for much of our society at large, we're just playing out a value of our society at large, which glorifies youth, tries to delay signs of aging, um, suppress signs of um, mortality. And the goal seems to be you know, whoever gets the most breath, the highest number of heartbeats wins. When I come to, as a Christian and as a theologian, come to scripture, um, I find that it's a very different narrative. And it's particularly when I started to dive into this image of Sheol, which just means the dark pit, the sort of dark, deep, muddy pit. And for people around other societies around ancient Israel, um, they had a notion of the underworld, which was basically a place where the dead went. And occasionally you have the Old Testament referring to Sheol in a similar way, but you also have this other sense where um, you have psalmists crying out to God from the pit, crying out for deliverance from the pit. And so they're, you're praying this psalm, and ancient Israel prayed this psalm. They're they're definitely not dead, right? As they're praying this psalm, and you have Jonah um, crying out from the belly 
of the fish calling this shale. And where Jonah and where the psalmist want to go is the temple. And so this was a puzzle. Like, what? Uh, like I thought dead was dead and the life was alive. But there's something even more basic and fundamental here. And it's something that um, John Levinson, who's a um, Jewish um, Hebrew Bible Old Testament scholar at Harvard, really helped teach me on on this and that what is more basic than biological death and biological life for the old testament and really does continue in the new is whether you are in the presence of god which is the place of the temple in fellowship with god where god dwells or whether you are in the place where god is distant um, or god at least appears to be absent um, in the pit in Sheol. And so as a, particularly as a cancer patient, this was an important reframing that um, as I seek to live each day, my goal is not just to live as long as possible, um, but to seek life, which is life in fellowship with God, with others, with creation. Um, um, and communion with those, as opposed to just trying to survive, um, as if the goal is to, you know, end with the most heartbeats or the most breath. Right, and I, I was just actually a couple of weeks ago participating in a, a Sunday school discussion of your book, and someone commented that they had never read a Christian book about death before. That this this idea, this, the confrontation with death, is, is something we want to def defer as long as possible, and even Christian writers don't want to address it. Despite death's universality, we still work overtime to to manage it. It's a theme that you write about in the book as well. Uh, I was wondering, what sort of effect does that have on us psychologically? The, the deferral of of you know death, and then trying to and actually processing what it'd be like to live in its presence. And is our own culture unique in the way that it tries to keep death on the sidelines. Yeah, that's, that's really significant. And it does make me, I can, I can see how the member of your Sunday school class could read many Christian books and not have it address stress. And I think in that point, at least that does point to a uniqueness of our time. Um, Christians have a long tradition of both remembering death um, on a daily basis and cultivating that practice and remembering death in worship, even as we remember baptism, our baptism, um, and as we tell the gospel story, as well as uh, a tradition of the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying, which um, had a whole huge literature that um, developed, especially actually after the bubonic plague and um, some of the virtues to develop as you think about yourself as mortal before before dying. So I think we are in a place where much of the rest of much of the earlier Christian tradition does look strange to us because death plays so much so big of a part. But I think that it's modern western especially white um middle class christianity which tends to um fall into this um and it's 
And so I think it says something about where, where we are. Now, on the one hand, I think that denying our mortality or suppressing our mortality is just a basic feature of what it means to be human. Um, and it's something that scripture can, um, confronts directly. Um, so, for example, you know, the psalmist repeatedly talks about how our life is um, short, like a breath before God. Um, and God is, you know, everlasting in comparison. And one of the one of the prayers of this book is from Psalm 90, you know, to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so it's this reflection on the shortness of life in relation to the everlasting God um, that is actually some of the energy behind Christian prayer. And I remember reading commentaries on this passage from the 16th century from Luther and Calvin, for example. And, you know, Calvin says that we live each on a daily basis as if we were going to live a thousand years. And um, so that was the 16th century death and, and dying was uh, a much more daily event then. Um, but people were still inclined as human beings to um, sort of suppress it and say that it doesn't apply to us. But we have undergone some really dramatic cultural changes that I think we're just kind of blind to because we don't really know any other way. So even in 1940 in the United States, for example, most deaths took place in homes. And so you would have basically a child <laughs> have the experience of a contemporary hospice worker as they would have a loved one take care of a grandparent or a parent or a sibling as they die in the living room. Um, this would be part of growing up. And in contrast, now when I teach at seminary, I think that um, you know many of my students have never been to a single funeral. They've many of them have never seen a dead body. <laughs> um, and so the the kind of encounters with death which kind of mirror back to us that yes, you too are mortal, we don't have very often because we've institutionalized death, we've institutionalized the dying, we've separated them out. And so death becomes something for the headlines where, you know, oh, we're really angry about this death, somebody needs to be sued or, or something like that. Or death becomes about entertainment um, or, you know, movies or, or so on. And implicitly, I think what we pick up is that death is something that happens to other people. And particularly for Christians, there's a, a tremendous amount at stake for this because um, in some ways, the whole center of Christian hope is not addressing the problem of how to extend our lives, but it's addressing the problem of what to do because we are helpless in the face of death, what to do with the problem of death. And I think Christian hope tends to just gravitate to something else if we don't 
really think in our daily life that death is a problem. It tends to gravitate toward, oh, you know, how can my faith um, help me to be more financially successful or have a better family life or, you know, things like that. And those, those goals have their, have their place, but the center of Christian hope is a sense of uh, that, that we're in the pit, we're in Sheol um, and need deliverance from the problem of death. And that's something that many Christians have lost sight of. The idea of death doesn't really fit well into a live, laugh, love meme. You know, it's not something no, that no, no. <laughs> it doesn't seem to market very well. And I think that's actually some of it. So it, you also, though, write about uh, the ways in which our attempt to manage death can take on a sort of unhealthy therapy. So if you are confronted with death and its reality and its darkness, and the sort of immediate human instinct is to find some sort of coping mechanism, some kind of therapeutic attempt to manage what you're feeling, the sort of the, the brunt of uh, death's darkness. So I was curious, though, can you distinguish between a sort of a bad, unhealthy attempt to manage an encounter with death and suffering with the sorts of maybe practices, habits, or spiritual disciplines, which can be very helpful in getting us through the darkness? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that it's an area where I certainly and much of our culture has a lot of learning to do because the suppression of death and the pushing away of death as if it's always just a morbid thing that we need to avoid has put us in an odd place. Recently, there have been trends in funerals, for example, to make them simply celebrations. Um, I had a former student contact me recently where it was a funeral. She was asked to preside at a funeral, which was basically like a birthday party with, you know, all of the celebrations of birthday and you have different themed celebrations. And, you know, of course there can be, there can be a place for the whimsical in remembering a loved one who has died. Along with this kind of trend, there has been a separation from the body um, of the loved one not wanting to encounter the dead, the dead body. Um, sometimes, you know, the practice has been almost that a dead body is contagious, that you need to call the funeral director immediately and get it out of your hands. And the dead body is not contagious. And when you look at societies around the world, Christian and other religious traditions, spending time with the dead body is actually important. <laughs> um, having a, a, a dead body at a cell, at the um, funeral is actually significant for, you know, the, the Christian tradition. And so sometimes our coping mechanisms are, are kind of ways of just saying, make it go away or make it so it's not a loss. So sometimes in Christian circles, it happens like this. Someone will die and the loved one will hear a lot. The, the spouse or family member will hear a lot. Oh, they're in a better place. I remember being with a man who had been married for over 50 years. And his, he was coming to the anniversary of his wife's death. He was in tears because he was feeling guilty. Because he says, you know, everyone says that 
she's in a better place. And so basically everyone says you should be happy, but I want her here. And so these approaches as coping mechanisms aren't actually helpful from a number of standpoints, psychological, um, but they actually, uh, for a Christian, are not consistent with Christian teaching. Christian teaching is that death will not have the final word, and there will be a day when we can say, death, where is thy sting? But until then, there's a sting. And until then, there is a loss. And there is something about death that is just like, wow, this is not the way things are supposed to be. I think often it's the process of trying to grieve very quickly or even to think for those who I've known in the cancer community who have lost young children. um, Sometimes their friends think, oh, after a year or two, you should be over it. Um, You don't get over it. (laughs) It doesn't, it won't always feel the same. Um, but at least the parents I know like this, you, yeah, you, you don't get over it. And that doesn't mean that you're denying Christian hope, not at all. It just means that you are a creature who loves and experiences loss. And this is part of what it means to be an embodied, um, embodied creature. And so I think the more helpful approaches tend to emphasize, yeah, our embodiment the fact that we we can experience great loss, and yet um, for Christians that this loss is not the final word. It's not a loss that needs to lead us to despair, um, because our biggest hope all along was not for a long life, <laughs> that God never promised us a long life. Our biggest hope, or what I call in the book, the Grand Canyon of, the, of Christian hope, is the day of the Lord, when Christ returns and shakes this broken and fallen creation to make it new, um, to make it right. It's this big cosmic hope. Um, But many of us assume that, yeah, God has promised us to live to 80 or 90. And um, and (laughs) so, yeah, so that that also needs to be refrained. We open the podcast with a tornado siren, and now church bells are doing a concert in the background. I'm not sure what it means to progress from tornado sirens to church bells. I, I think that's a hopeful, <laughs> hopeful yeah, sign. That so that will be our background good. soundtrack for a minute. I, I want to ask you, this is, a, I suppose, a somewhat personal question, but I, I wanted to know, what are some of the more powerful or meaningful ways that people have shown you love while you've been in the pit? And what, what does it look like to love someone well who is in Sheol, because it can be such an alienating place, such a dark place. What, what would it mean to, to be a friend and to show care to somebody like that? Yeah, so in this place of Sheol, it's a dark place where the light of life and the light of God seems so distant and you feel abandoned. I think that one thing that friends have done is similar to what Job's friends did early on. Um, Job, Job's friends um, get a bad rap, um, but they, they did the right thing first. They Job was suffering and they came and they just sat with him. And that was the right thing to do. Um, 
um, they after that they started to try to explain why this happened, and likewise, I've had had times where people have you know explained, oh, this is why God gave you cancer, or things like that. Um, that's that's not as helpful. Um, but uh, the other thing that uh, there's several other things. Um, one is that people lamented with me because when you're in the pit, you don't always even have the energy to lament. At least that was true for me as a cancer patient. You know, I, it's such a blur. You're starting chemotherapy and on high doses of steroids and you're just trying to, you know, keep alive to the moment and figure out what in the world's going on with my body. And I have some powerful memories of friends reaching out and saying, I'm, I'm angry about this. I'm, I'm bringing my anger before God. I'm lamenting with you, Lord, why have you forsaken us, you know, entering into the, the lament of the Psalms, even laments that question God. They question God because they trust God enough to bring our hardest questions to him. So if we, you know, have a close friend, those are the ones that we are willing to actually, you know, bring hard questions to. But if we're distant from someone, you know, why bother? Or if we didn't trust that God could do anything about it, why bother? Even though I wrote a book about lament after my cancer diagnosis, it was really friends and folks in church and seminary communities. They were the first ones to lament. I didn't have the energy or even like the mental clarity to lament. <laughs> and I was able to enter into that over time. But it's not the sort of thing that you can just, oh, I have a cancer diagnosis and I get my mind around. I mean, that was, you know, over eight years ago and I'm still getting my mind around it each day. Like you don't comprehend it. It's because it has new implications um, each, each day. So I think the final thing is I came to just love and so much appreciate what um, my theological tradition calls um, the ordinary means of grace. Um, so gathering with the people of God and it's, during COVID, it's, it's had to be virtual for me as I have special risks, you know, particular risks for COVID. But gathering with the people of God to hear the word preached, to receive the word and sacrament um, and to pray that in some ways, the steadiness of that, the weekly participation in that was incredibly helpful in, in the pit. And it wasn't some dramatic action that somebody did, but the, you're looking for some place to trust or something that gives you orientation when you're in the pit. And so it's a very ordinary, weekly embodied, regular way that you just can trust and hope God is going to show up here. You mentioned earlier, and I also mentioned it in my intro, this reality that many young people, especially, have never really seen death. 
in a very sort of literal physical way in the sense of like, just like I said, a couple of my students in the entire class said they'd actually seen a dead body at a funeral. I was wondering if we can just kind of shift into the classroom context for a second and speaking from our own vocations as educators, how can we bring the memento mori, the, the remembering that we are going to die into the classroom and how can we ask young adults and students not just what it would mean to to live well, which speaking for myself as an ethicist comes pretty naturally, but how could we ask them to consider what it would mean to think about death and how to have a good death at the end of their life? That's a really significant question. I think that for young adults and for really everyone in our culture who we are helping to orient toward living. And so I encountered this a lot as a parent. How am I to think through preparing my kids um, to, um, for encounters with death, perhaps with you know my own death? Um, and so we actually started to seek out opportunities, um, not in the sense of just going to random um, funerals, though, you know, that would be kind of interesting. Um, but I sought out places where I could be with, I could have my kids join me in coming to know elderly people and others who were facing death. And it was such a gift, not just to them, um, but to us. And it wasn't anything dramatic. We would go to the nursing home or hospital, wherever they were, and spend some time, you know, say, maybe say the Lord's Prayer. Um, but they developed a bond and there was so much joy that just kids brought. Um, but there are also, you know, we were able to be with some of these folks in their last words and then, you know, go to the funeral, take them out of school to go to the funeral. And it was so good for the kids because it gave them exposure where they asked, asked a lot of questions about death and very naturally a lot of questions about faith. And it was sustained enough encounter that, you know, they could tell that this was going to happen to them too and to daddy and to others, right? And so I think my, my general advice here is there's no replacement for a person-to-person encounter and relationship with someone who is, you know, facing, facing death or has um, failing health and, and so forth. Um, but um, I think particularly for college students and young adults, some of where the rubber hits the road is that um, I think an awareness and embrace of our mortal limits is actually pretty contradictory to some of how we sell college these days, um, at least some of the common ways. Because when we, whenever we say, you know, you are here to be prepared to go change the world, to go transform the world, we're saying something about death and mortality. And what we're saying, I think, is actually pretty toxic. The fact is we are small, we are mortal, our lives are short, 
in the 90s, I was told that it was up to my generation to solve all the problems and to go save the world. And we're telling the same thing to the young generation now. And, and it's just not, it's just not true. It's actually not possible and it's not helpful. Um, I think there's a, there's a freedom that can come when we enter into not just in our mind, but in our experience that we are small and our lives are short. And so if faced with a question of, am I going to invest my life with someone who is suffering in the shadows and be present to them? Or am I going to, you know, just enter into a great ambition that's going to change everything that I see that is going wrong and everything is going to be different. You know, the problems in the United States will be much better and the church will be overcoming hypocrisy and so forth. That's a terrible burden that actually leads to burnout, disillusionment. And it's a really, it's also a neo-colonial sort of burden, actually, but that's kind of a different, different story. Um, like it's it's just really really not help healthy. So, um, one friend of mine who teaches whenever he teaches um, the senior seminar in the religion department at college, he always has it on death <laughs> because he thinks this is what college students need to know about more than anything else um, as they think about their future, as they graduate, um, as they think about their vocation. Teaching uh, Plato's Apology, The Death of Socrates, has always been one of the most interesting pedagogical moments for me. I, I often teach that in uh, intro course, courses because students are just shocked by the idea that uh, the idea about good death, an honorable death, a virtuous death is the only way to really know whether you've lived well or not. <laughs> That's such, yeah, a, yeah. such a foreign concept to them. And yet it's not just a, an ancient Greek idea. It, it also seems to be very much at the heart of both Jewish and Christian and and actually Muslim traditions as well, or the Confucian yeah, yeah. writings that I, I mentioned in my intro. It's really just seems to be a sort of modern, as you say, maybe middle-class privileged position that somehow for some reason has managed to occlude death from what it means to have a meaningful life. I wanted to ask you the one final question for you, Todd. This is a, such a wonderful book and I really strongly encourage readers to, to pick it up. It's It's been um, a very meaningful read for me, especially during this uh, liturgical season of Lent, uh, sort of an intentional way to, to think about mortality, especially in the midst of a year-long pandemic when we cannot yeah, yeah. avoid it anymore. It's yeah. almost it's almost too much, to be perfectly honest at times. Yeah, I, yeah. well, don't blame me for the pandemic. It was not part of my <laughs> book release plan. So, <laughs> Well, it was good, good timing, whatever you make of that. I want to ask though, are there other places, books, podcasts, pieces of music, poetry, whatever you would like to to highlight that uh, listeners could go to if they want to think more about this topic, if they if they want to spend some time contemplating mortality in this Lenten season or in whatever tradition they find themselves, like how could they begin to explore this idea and its meaning for their life? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question and. It's the sort of thing where I'm continuing to discover new things 
even though I've written a book about that, that it doesn't mean that I never live under the illusion that I'm going to live forever. Um, I feel almost like it's similar to in an, like an AA meeting or something where my name is Todd. I'm addicted to the illusion that I'm immortal, like <laughs> immortal, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's not a one-time thing where you like read one book and then you're okay, I got that taken care of. Now I can move on. And that's some of why in the Christian tradition from, you know, Benedict of Nursa, this was part of the um, Benedictine rule was to reflect daily on your death in relation to the eternity of God. And, um, you know, Protestants as well, Jonathan Edwards and others made this a daily practice. But um, there are a lot of really good um, resources and books out there um, some of my favorites, actually, I was able to interview the authors for, um, with a book, uh, excuse me, with a podcast that I, um, produced when this, uh, when my book, the end of the Christian life came out and it's just called the end of the Christian life. So, um, I have interviews there with, um, Deanna Thompson, Thomas Lynch, who is a superb, um, poet and, um, funeral director. Um, his book, The Undertaking, is just really, really um, profound and worth reading. Yes. And we have um, six different um, authors that I interview there. Um, others that um, come to mind are um, some pretty well-known ones, but really worthwhile. Atul Gawande, um, Being Mortal, um, uh, Harvard um, physician who the book is reflecting upon how we in many ways expect for medicine to solve the problem of death and yet medicine can't solve it. <laughs> and he's saying this, you know, from a medical perspective, um, Paul Kalanithi, another physician who became Christian, um, late in his life, um, when breath becomes air is very profound. Um, on some of the Ars Moriendi tradition, and um, the tradition of the art of dying in the Christian tradition. Um, one of my favorite books is by Matthew Levering, Dying and the Virtues, um, which he's Roman Catholic um, and gives an account of the virtues of, of um, in the process and the path of dying, which actually apply to all of us really in the end, um, since all of us are dying. Um, and then a really recent one, um, if you are thinking about end-of-life questions, either for yourself or for a parent or for a loved one, um, I think my top recommended book for that right now is um, Lydia Dugdale's um, The Lost Art of Dying. Um, she's a physician at um, and professor at Columbia University and a Christian, and she's been you know, present at hundreds, if not thousands, of, of deaths. And, um, she spends part of the book going into some of this Christian tradition of the art of dying. Um, but it, her audience is not just Christians, um, but she, you know, uses a pretty broad framing for um, um, speaking about these virtues. But then she gets very concrete and very specific about what sort of things you should do <laughs> Um, and think through in advance medically, um, like do not resuscitation orders, do not resuscitate orders, and so on. Um, 
because she's been in so many situations where um, people and often people of faith um, ask for extreme measures, which have um, in some circumstances, they have basically like a lottery ticket chance of making any difference and they increase the suffering and the indignity. And it's been shown that they also, you know, the rates of severe depression of um, family members afterwards when they've gone through this are much higher. Like there's a huge cost to, to using medical um, resources when um, like there's always going to be another medical option you can use. There's always something more you can do. That's one of our gifts and curses of modern medicine. Um, you just don't get to a point where the doctor says there's nothing more that we can do. It's very rare. And for most of human history and around the world, you would get to that point. Um, so we have to have an awareness as loved ones face death, as we face death. Then in a sense, we have to be able to draw that line and draw that in advance um, because otherwise um, it can it can lead to some pretty horrific um, out outcomes. So um, even though my book is really about living the, the whole life, I don't have a major focus on sort of end of life issues. Um, I do think those end of life issues in terms of, okay, what concretely should I do or uh, do with a family member who, you know, we're anticipating will die in the next few years. Um, I think for that set of questions, both the Tuolka Wande book, um, but then probably my favorite is the Lydia Dugdale book, The Lost Art of Dying. Those are all such wonderful recommendations. And I'll just add in that you actually participated in um, another podcast conversation with Lydia Dugdale and Noah Tolley at uh, the Liberating Arts uh, channel, which you can find at theliberatingarts.org. It was a really lovely conversation, as I've, I've told you offline. I was really touched and moved by that. Um, and of course, so one last recommendation in the book, The End of the Christian Life, How Embracing Our Mortality Frees Us to Truly Live. I think essential reading for this uh, particular year. Uh, and uh, I just want to thank you again, Todd, for, for joining me and, and sharing your, your thoughts and your experiences and your wisdom with our listeners. This has been a, a really wonderful conversation. Yeah, my, my pleasure, Davey. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, Follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call and Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found. And leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time. Bye.